Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Good morning and welcome to the morning briefing for Thursday, October 11th, 2018. I'm your host, Eric Dame, and coming up on today's show, we're going to talk with the co-founder of War Horses for Veterans. His name is Patrick Benson. He is an Army veteran, and he's going to tell us how he got into horses and how horses can help veterans basically overcome some of the issues that they might have, whether it's PTSD, depression, things like that. It's a great program that they're running out in Kansas, and we're going to find out all about it in just a little bit. And then later on, Joe Chanelli, executive director of AMVETS, will be here for his typical Thursday morning segment. We're going to talk to him about a number of issues and items that are affecting the veteran community and that the AMVETS team is working on. So all of that still to come. And of course, here in the first segment, we are going to talk about the latest and greatest or not so great, as it turns out, news facing the veteran community. And we're going to start off with the big story. Actually, uh, some of you may know, I do a second show called CBS Eye on Veterans that airs on, oh, 40-plus stations around the country. And then we have these Eye on Veterans Minutes that air on over 100 stations around the country, uh, syndicated shows. This week, we've got a, a segment focusing on the GI Bill and focusing specifically on the GI Bill living stipend payments that have not been made to somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 students in college on the GI Bill. So here's what happened. Essentially, they made some changes to the GI Bill. Last year, Congress uh, put some new stuff into the GI Bill and told the VA to do it. Uh, the VA has basically struggled with that. And this summer, there was a delay certifying veterans' payments. Because of that delay, these payments have yet to be made for a huge number of veterans. And there wasn't much info being given to those veterans or to the certifying officials for the schools. That's pretty important. Those are the people who certify the students at the school level, and they didn't know what was going on. So imagine you're going to school on the GI Bill, and you go to the person who's supposed to take care of that for the school and say, hey, I'm not getting my living payments. What's the deal? And they say, I don't know. VA hasn't told us anything. Hmm. It's exactly what's happened, and sadly, it's not all that surprising, as we've been talking about here. Finally, the VA has said something about it, and what they said is, well, in a letter, we are averaging a little over 35 days to work first-time applications and 23 days for re-enrollments. That's, that's what they said in a mass email that they sent out to student veterans, and they say, quote, we regret that these delays are occurring and the impact they may have on you and your family. Oh, well, as long as you regret it, I'm sure everything will be okay for the people that aren't able to make their rent or mortgage payment or that aren't able to keep the lights on for the month or that have to take out a loan to just get by. Well, as long as they regret it, everything is fine. Um, and another thing I noticed in that line, we're averaging a little over 35 days. Were you averaging 35 days, 36 days? I mean, if, if it's a little over 35 and not 36, just tell us it's 35. And the reason that I point that out is we've seen with the VA before where they'll say something like, you should receive it in somewhere around 45 days. 
That's what they said with their VA ID card. We're closing in on 365 days since that was released. Uh, I think we're at about 330-something right now. We're almost a year out from when they told people they would be able to get their VA ID cards, and they told them, well, you should receive it in around 45 days. That didn't happen, so uh, you wonder when they say, well, we're averaging a little over 35 days for first-time applications and 23 days for re-enrollment. So 23 days is a little bit more specific, but when I hear the VA say they're averaging a little over 35 days, Phil Briggs, uh, it gives me pause because what's a little over 35 days? When they put out those VA ID cards for people to be able to prove that they're veterans to get their free ice cream sundae on Veterans Day, they told them they should get them around 45 days from application. That was very vague language, and it Mm -hmm. turned out to be very untrue language because almost nobody got theirs 45 days out. Why not just say we're averaging 35 days? I mean, I know how math works. Averages get you a very specific number, bird dog. They don't give you like, well, somewhere around 35 to 30. No, it's there is a number. Give us the number. Why aren't they giving us the number? What do you think? I don't know why they don't do anything more efficiently. Um, it's a it's a behemoth of a of an organization. But as we've reported on it, specifically with the ID cards, but with many. Well, and the, the GI things, Bill payments now are a much bigger deal. Saying, yeah. With all of what they try to do, I think I think their speed is due to their processes. Um, I, the verification process on a very simple matter. I know nothing of the GI Bill payments, so I don't know how they disseminate those, and I don't know how the accounting works, and I don't know how the funding and how you know writing checks works. But I know something as simple as checking and verifying a service member's eligibility for a VA ID card turned into quite a huge, slow process when, in fact, it could have just been streamlined and done faster. They took great painstaking lengths to go into service members' background. And from what I was told directly by the VA, they had a person who would physically get an application and have to do this, you know, run down the hallway, look through the file cabinet, find the person's records, run back to his desk, stamp the application, and then repeat. I'm betting this is like a little old dude named Eugene who's not running anywhere. He's, you know... Right. Shuffling down the hall and getting better. And as fast and as great as the employees are, you know, the processes are not updated. And I think oftentimes there's automation, there's certain kinds of things. I mean, Google, if it needed to give you a Google ID card, would probably have a system up and running yeah. in seven days that would literally give you an ID card printed in seven minutes because they would have some sort of algorithm and some sort of software in place that would and then boom, it's verified and you're done. And I don't know why the VA's processes in general aren't more automated aren't more efficient aren't more updated it just seems to me that a lot of times when we deal with the va it's person hallway file manila folder you know this kind of archaic systems are in place there's a lot of archaic stuff over there uh karina on facebook live saying making me do math 35 times 35 times 35 that may end up being how long people wait to get those living stipends from the gi bill yeah i mean you you just don't know again we're closing in on 365 for the silly id card Who cares about that? This is something to care about where that's the money that these college students, for the most part, live on. It's what they use to get by. For me, I I, with my college schedule and having a child, a young child at the time, I wouldn't have been able to do it without that living stipend. And now these people, it's going to be over a month, it looks like, on average. So if that's the average, okay, there's going to be some people that are waiting a lot more than that. Two months without any income for some of these people? What do you think the landlords are going to say about that? What do you think the creditors are going to say about that? Credit card companies, the phone company. I mean, it, it's they don't care. 
They don't know about this, for right. one, and they don't care. And the VA is saying, hey, uh, if you're experiencing, uh, experiencing financial hardship, please let us know by contacting us via the GI Bill website. They give you a, an online form to fill out basically, right. to go ahead and do that. So, you know, th that's great. Uh, and they say that there's a, uh, a number that you can call to ask about your GI Bill benefits, but they say you can avoid waiting on the phone for a payment status by calling 1-888-442-4551 and choosing option two for an automated response. Oh, goody. If there's anything I like, it's when I call hoping to talk to a person and get an automated, automated response. response. At least the VA is giving you the option to know that you're getting that useless information and press 2 immediately. When you were talking about the process is not improving and you talked about the workers there, and there are a lot of great workers at the VA, yes. there's also some not very good workers. There's also some people who uh, are very hard, if not impossible, to get rid of over there. And I wonder if the lack of process improvement on the admin side has anything to do with the union over there. Because unions mm. typically will fight against any sort of upgrade if it's going to cost people their jobs. So if our, our yeah. theoretical Eugene, the guy who's working on those VAID cards, yeah. if they could automate that process, make it more streamlined and smooth, but you, Eugene is going to lose his job and maybe a couple other Eugenes out there are going to lose their job, well, then the union's going to fight against it. 42,875. That's 35 by 35 by 35. Right. Karina, thank you for doing the math for me because it's early. <laughs> I'm not, and I'm not good at math even when it's late. So here you go. You know, I, I wonder if that has anything to do with it. We've heard before, we've heard from the VSOs that there is a shop steward for the union, the, the union of uh, government workers over at the VA. There are shop stewards who have an office and their full-time job that the VA is paying them for is to be the union shop steward. Mm. I was a member of a union in New York City, and our shop steward worked a normal job. He had one half day a week, I think it was, where he focused on union stuff, but right. he, he did a normal job. These people, it's their only job. So I do wonder if that has anything to do with the overarching problem of, particularly on the, uh, the, the bureaucracy and admin side, uh, the lack of improvement uh, in how they do these things. Yeah, and to that, you know what I've been surprised at as we've covered the VA and our very own Jonathan Copanger reports on this daily on ConnectingVets.com, but as we've done so many stories on the VA, and it seems every time we deal with a government entity, there's these processes that just are not efficient. What blows me away is that take that union shop steward, take that union that works for the VA or that represents the VA workers, take Wilkie, take all the senior officials, and why have we never seen a summit with the tech giants, the Googles and the, the Microsofts and, 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 and get people to the table? Because at the, at the end of the day, even the union employees' jobs are to help service the veterans of America who have yeah. already done the heavy lifting. They've already done their part. Why have we never seen some sort of summit with respect to tech giants helping these processes get better at the healthcare records, at making them more portable, at making right. them more digital, at these uh, GI Bill payments, making them more efficient, at, again, our very simple example, the ID cards. Why have we never seen a summit with smarter people to all get in the room? And I see it in the private industry. Heck, I even see it in our building. When we get in a conference room and we go, hey, how can we improve what we're doing here? You know, we sit down and occasionally have s smarter people than us get on the phone with us and tell us a thing or two. I, it blows me away. Blows me away. We've never seen that kind of collaboration with the private sector. And I'm not trying to talk privatization. I'm just but saying they're better at it. Just using the minds and the techniques that the systems are using outside the VA. Uh, you know, the more stories, and, and every morning, Monday through Friday, 
right here on ConnectingBets.com uh, and also on Radio.com and all those lovely places where you can hear the show, iTunes, Stitcher. Go ahead and uh, sign up and you can download every day uh, the show. The more stories I read about the issues at the VA, uh, the more I lean towards we do need to privatize some things. And we do need to get this out of the hands of people who have continuously shown an inability to do it. And I'm speaking specifically of the bureaucratic side, the admin side, the IT side, the paperwork, mm -hmm. the online stuff. They're just, they're just not good at it. Now, do they have some good people over there? Yeah. Do they have some good ideas? Occasionally. Are they good at implementing any of it? No. No, they are not. And I'm sure there are people out there who will argue with me. A lot of them probably work for the VA. Sure. Uh, you know, the more I hear about it, though, the more I think that that aspect of it should not be in the hands of the people that it's in. And I've seen it before with the military, with DOD, with everything. When the government has their hands on that sort of stuff, the right. IT and the admin stuff, it, it doesn't go well. It doesn't go well. You know why? There's too many levels. There's always a bigger fish in the government, and that bigger fish is usually uh, just one half step above the slightly smaller fish, and it's got to go through uh, this guy, this woman, this guy, this woman, this guy, this woman. They all have different ideas. It gets changed each time. By yeah. the way, it comes back down. It's just not good. If I can, look out your window, and you'll actually see an example of where private industry helps make government regulation more efficient. And you look out the window, and you see outside these glass windows here a, a skyscraper being built. It's an office yeah, building. People can it's, see the crane right behind me on Probably Facebook 15 Live. stories, big giant crane. It's nothing more than an assembly of concrete and glass and construction workers right now. But behind all that are general contractors that have been tasked with making that building conform to the regulatory process. It has to meet inspection. It has to meet its permits. It has to, you know, they have to have their blueprints and all the different things turned in on time. And to help make that process go faster, there are private companies that help offer those contractors the services of getting those applications filled out, of going with the prints to the certain zoning regulatory office and making sure that their deadlines get met and the signatures get made and the stamps get stamped. But the private industry helps make that go faster because they contract these courier companies and these companies to help do that. I don't understand why the VA isn't integrating with some private entities to help make some of these processes run smoother like the construction industry. Because then they'd be streamlined and people would lose their jobs. That's, that's it. I'm telling you right now, that's a big part of it. If you automated stuff, a lot of the people who hold those manila folders all day long, they'd lose their jobs. And that would be a problem for the union and for the people who have those jobs. And I understand that. But uh, them keeping their jobs is not what I'm about. I'm about veterans getting what they're supposed to get. Yeah, because at the so, end of the day, that building needs to get built and veterans need to get the care they've been promised. Speaking of veterans getting what they're supposed to get, when there are charities out there that are supposed to be helping veterans, it's a great thing. And mm -hmm. I love talking to them. However, I also know that we need to do our due diligence uh, as much as we can to find out what's going on with these, these charities, because sometimes you get stories like this one. It's called Dog Tag Furniture, and it's being reported that uh, by our friend Jeff Zizulowitz at Military Times. Maybe we'll see if we can get him in here to talk about this. Uh, this guy, Troy D. Walker, started Dog Tag Furniture, and he created it as uh, basically a mission to aid vets after a service, uh, after a guy he served with uh, took his own life, family couldn't afford a funeral. Mm. Well, he's going to raise money for them. Uh, he's been featured on things like Fox and Friends. He was on twice in fall of 2017. You know, talked about how important it was to him and i hold the personal responsibility to make sure every dollar i received goes out to funerals okay well now he's under investigation by the fbi and u.s postal service uh with allegations of money laundering and wire fraud in quote a scheme to defraud donors who made charitable donations to their company 
Troy Walker both solicited donations to Dog Tag Furniture and sold wooden flags to customers of Dog Tag Furniture by falsely representing to donors and customers that Dog Tag Furniture was a charitable organization and that all of the proceeds of donations and sales would be used to provide funerals for military veterans. That's from the sworn affidavit attached to a search warrant uh, request from last month. Uh, and goes on to say, instead of using their money to pay for funerals for military veterans, Troy and Renema Walker used a significant portion of the money for their own purposes, including tattoo parlor payments, private school tuition for their kids, $9,000 at Disney resorts. Well, that's only about two days at Disney. What kind of yeah, right. price tag is down there? <laughs> 5000 in food and entertainment and 7000 to a law firm representing the couple. I, this is infuriating but it's also not surprising for every good company out there there's probably a bad one that's that's yeah. not doing what they say i uh, you know maybe it's less than that but i'm starting to become more cynical when it comes to this this stuff i mean we've had people on before you've talked to people who turned out to not be what they said they were and yeah. you know unless you do a real deep dive that oftentimes people just don't have the time to do you're not going to find that stuff out if someone says, "Hey, man, yeah, I was in the uh, I was in the Navy and I did this and I did that and I did this," okay, it, it can sound legit. You know, I was in for 13 years. I learned enough about other things in the military, including I served with the Army, I served with the Air Force, I was in the Navy. I could pretend to be something that I wasn't. Yeah, I mean, for all you people know, I wasn't a, a military journalist and broadcaster. Maybe I made that up. Maybe <laughs> I was a mess specialist. Maybe I was just throwing food into a giant pot. Hey, it's something a la king because it's Friday and we need to get rid of all the food we didn't use. It's fish chicken a la king. It's a new thing. Shut up and eat it. Maybe I did that. I mean, I could fake it. And there yeah. are people within four years, I could probably could have faked pretty good on being uh, a few different jobs in the Navy. It, it's it's hard to figure out who's doing the right thing. And when it gets to this point, well, right. thankfully, the feds are apparently going to do that. But are those people going to get their money back that thought their money was going to veterans when in reality... Uh, it just went to this one veteran and his family. How do you how do you feel about that? And what do you think our part is in how much research and digging we should do before we give someone any type of a platform? Well, one, I think your journalism and broadcasting is indicative of the fact that you may have actually been a mess cook. I, I, I've yet to oh, be impressed with oh, anything you do. Right, right in the <laughs> right in the professional cojones. But uh, yeah. I wish there was a verification thing. You know, we see when we do e-commerce on websites, it's like e-verify. And for some reason, I have no idea what that means. But for some reason, I know when I'm giving my credit card number to Amazon, I, I, I'm i trusting that whatever that little logo means is keeping my crap safe. Yeah. Um, I wish there was some sort of verification, something that people had to adhere to, because you're right. We do so many stories and you look on their websites and they say, I'm a 501C and three and four yeah. charitable organization. Um, if we're doing a story on a service member, we may request a picture from their service past, but I have no way of knowing that that's actually him in the photo wearing yeah. his, you know, camos from 1989 in Kosovo. I mean, it's tough. And, and, and I think that that's where you just have to maybe hope you're dealing with the larger organizations. And when you find a smaller one that speaks to your heart, maybe is selling that wooden cross or that, that, that engraved flag or that uh, yeah. widget that you really want. I mean, I guess you just have to roll the dice. But to me, there should again be a process there. There should be some kind of national registry or some sort of something that, that, that we could all join and, do, and, and know as a consumer right. that they that, that, that they've met a litmus test and that someone has researched them because when I'm just trying to help a brother out, 
I ain't got time to be digging into public records and figure out if that charity I'm yeah. dealing with for my flag is legit. I Put mean, in I just, a freedom of information request yeah, on someone's know? DD-214. I mean, it's 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 not going to happen. And that's what happens. Like, this guy was on Fox and Friends. He went on apparently with Glenn Beck because he got a picture on his uh, Instagram of him uh, hugging Glenn Beck there. Yeah. Um, you know, this this guy got a large platform. People didn't know that apparently he was just putting most of the money in his pocket. I don't know if anything was going to veterans, but apparently not as much as should have been is what the feds are saying. And there are amazing companies out there. Flags of Valor, Brian Stortz, who we've had in mm-hmm. studio, they are they do the same well, better quality. I saw pictures of his wooden flags and I was like, oh, those are not as nice as Flags of Valor's flags. Right. We have one sitting in the studio right here. Um you know, they do great work. They're all combat veterans making them. Yep. They participate in veteran charity events. They just did the run from uh, from D.C., from the Pentagon to the World Trade Center, the relay run. Uh, they've donated flags for, like, Service Member of the Year and Purple Hearts Reunited. I mean, they are very active in the veteran community. This guy said he was, but, you know, uh, something eventually must have tipped somebody off or somebody must have asked some questions because you are going to run into – uh, the issues where you say, you know, you say you're doing something and eventually you're going to get caught. You're going to get caught. Yeah. And and to that, I think that there's more reasonable places to look to apply your donations. We've seen a lot on GoFundMe recently. And yeah, how about, I'd be very careful with those. How about that? Uh, how about that bee from uh, wherever it was that took the 400,000 from the homeless oh, the veteran heroin addict kind of dropped out of the news. Yeah. But, you know, it was... It, to me, I don't know. The GoFundMe tends to be like the red light district of any sort of donations. I mean, you can easily give to the wrong person or you know catch an STD in that uh, realm if you're not careful. You know what I always see on those, and this it's always a red flag for me. You know when we see, and and everyone that I'm aware of has turned out to be a hoax. Yeah. These waiters and waitresses who claim that someone left a sexist, bigoted, racist, whatever note yeah. on their on their receipt. Every single one that I'm aware of has turned out to not have been real. They did it themselves, essentially. Because yeah, you can print is. a duplicate copy of your receipt, yep. and all you need to do and is then, put or, it in a check register and take a picture of it. Or they take right. the one that you don't sign. They take the one, you know, you oh, have the customer copy, or, yeah. and, and the customer copy, you might leave it there, and they'll put it there. Sometimes it's not, not the same color ink as where they wrote zero for the tip. They get angry because they didn't get a tip or whatever. Uh, one of them, I remember, was a, uh, a Marine in New Jersey who claimed she was a Purple Heart recipient and all that stuff. She had a GoFundMe page because these people left this homophobic... Uh, uh, note on her receipt. Yeah. It turned out she wasn't a combat veteran. She was in for like a couple months and then got hurt in a training accident, falling off a truck or something. Uh, and she wrote that uh, note herself. But anytime I see that GoFundMe thing pop up, I'm like, oh, you're looking for money. That's what this is about. It's not about like, I. why do you think you deserve money? Because someone left you a... Uh, uh, you know, a note on a receipt that you didn't like or that was that was mean spirited. Shouldn't somebody else start that GoFundMe for you when you're doing it yourself? <laughs> yes. I think, huh? Okay, so this one person was out for that. Last thing I want to talk about. This is well, a, if I can, real quick, just one really more thing. quick, Phil. Yeah, just 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 want to say, you know what? The heavier lifting is when you want to give a donation that no one does or that very few people do. But it would be maybe look up a, a organization and see how you can give some time rather than money. Maybe there you look go. how you could get involved with a group and mentor or be involved. with Too a much time, Phil. Group. Stop. We've only got one minute left. There oh, you go. Do we? Okay. Yeah. When I say when I say really fast, Phil, I mean really fast. Pick up the pace, sailor. Come on. Get in there. Uh, Wright County Sheriff's Office. This is in Buffalo, Minnesota. Are investigating a theft at a ceremony at a cemetery. It's the gravesite of Rory Gavich. He served in the Air Force with a specially trained German Shepherd by his side, which makes me think he was likely Security Forces Squadron. 
He committed suicide in 2009. God bless. His family had a statue of his dog made and placed it next to the headstone at St. Francis Xavier Catholic Church Cemetery. And as is being reported by WCCO, CBS Minnesota, the statue of that dog has now been stolen. Been stolen from the gravesite oh, of an airman who killed himself. Uh, I want them to catch this person. You know what? I don't want the authorities to catch the person. I want some uh, some Air Force veterans to catch this person Amen. and let them know why that wasn't cool. Uh, he and his dog, Alan, were deployed three times to Iraq and Pakistan um, and were very close. Struggled with PTSD. 2009, he took his own life. His mother, Linda, had a statue of the companion and protector Alan made in place there. And now, four years later, uh, or I'm sorry, four years after that, Linda, his mother, also committed suicide, and the statue that she made has now been taken. This is absolutely infuriating. Absolutely infuriating. And there are monsters out there among us. And I, again, I hope that, uh, I, you know, I hope these people are, are caught, whatever. I'm, I'm a pretty hardcore person. If these people are uh, erased from the face of the earth, someone could snap their fingers, do some sort of magic spell, and they're just gone, I'd be fine with that. Yeah. <laughs> If they hear about this story uh, and they decide, oh, we didn't realize that, and they bring back the dog statue uh, or turn themselves in, uh, that's the only way to redeem themselves. Other than that, mm -hmm. if they get caught or if they try to destroy it or get rid of it or whatever, um, they're dead to me anyway, whether they're dead in real life or not. You're listening to The Morning Briefing here on Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day. You can also find us on social media. We are at Connecting Vets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Coming up next, we're going to talk to Patrick Benson, co-founder of War Horse for Vets. And then later on, Joe Chinelli, executive director of AmVets, is going to join us in studio. Stay tuned. We'll be back right after this. Welcome back to the morning briefing from Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is the slogan, and it's what we do. And you know why we do it. It's because each and every member of our team either knows what it's like to have worn the uniform, or knows what it's like to have grown up with a parent wearing the uniform, or knows what it's like to be married to someone who wears the uniform. We all have that experience. We've all gone through the same difficulties many of you have. And that's why we're trying each and every day to get the best information out there to you, the best news, the best benefits, the best stories, the blueprint to help you live your best veteran life. It's available on ConnectingVets.com. And you can also check us out on social media where we are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is the founder of an organization that's doing some pretty impressive things. He's also a veteran of the United States Army. He is Patrick Benson, the founder of War Horses for Vets. Patrick, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing great, Eric. Thank you for having me on. Well, it's absolutely our pleasure. And first, let's talk just a little bit about who Patrick Benson is, or more specifically, who he was. You, of course, served in the United States Army. So tell us a little bit about your service, you know, where you're from, when you joined, and what you did while you were serving in the Army. I'm from uh, Kansas City, Missouri. I uh, grew up here my whole life, and uh, when I graduated high school, I figured it was probably a good idea to uh, probably go in the military direction instead of uh, college. I didn't want to waste uh, my time and money, and so I joined the infantry. Our U.S. Army infantry went in in '98, and uh, from there, you know, served overseas in uh, Germany, and then uh, was in the Kosovo campaigns during the '99 there in the first part of the year, and then uh, after that. Got stationed in Fort Carson, and uh, going from the infantry to the cab was a little bit of change, but was uh, didn't complain when you knew how much firepower you had with the with the cab. So I was with the Third ATR, and that was the unit I was with when uh, we went in 03 into Iraq. 
and uh, spend most of our time over there in Fallujah, Habani, and Ramadi. Now, what, how long were you in? You joined in 98, same year of me. I came into the Navy in August of 1998. What year did you finish up your time in the Army, and, and what do you remember about that point of time in your life when you took that Army uniform off for the last time? Well, it was uh, six years, and I, you know, just, in, you know, injuries and just change of pace, wanted to try something another challenge in life, and uh, didn't realize what that was entailed. So when uh, about end of 03 in uh, getting out, I was literally uh, with, with you know, running running the team over there. Uh, there's two of us running a mortar section on that uh, attached to the cab and doing every other job other than mortars. Uh, you know, you know, if you had a little <laughs> bit of face of anything, you just went and did it. Um, so then I transitioned out of that into civilian life, and literally we were, you know, housing in engagements. And two weeks later, I'm becoming a civilian, and next thing you know, I'm starting a business and have no idea what I'm doing, but it's the way I always look at things like you sink or swim, and I don't plan on sinking. What advice would you give to someone who's maybe either going through the process of getting out right now or has got that coming up or just did get out? Uh, what advice would you give that you think might help people swim as opposed to sink, since you're a sink or swim kind of guy? You know, I, you know I've had this conversation actually with quite a few from um, officers to, to enlisted. And, you know, knowing you're going to be getting out in a year or a year and a half or two years, immediately start tapping into the immediate resources you have that are within and outside the military. If you don't plan on being connected to the government, some form of contracting or anything of that nature, and you end up going into the private sector of, you know, starting your own business or wanting to work for someone or, you know, and all those things, you know, the best thing to do is, you know, immediately start getting a business plan together. And, you know, it's like anything It's like, if you're going to transition to another job or go from a business to another business, you need to make sure you have things in place before you leap over to the next challenge. And that being said, you know, if it's, if you have a good family network or a personal network within, you know, your community, start tapping into it. Don't be afraid to ask. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Don't be afraid to ask for anything because if you don't, no one's going to know, you know, and, and don't think if it's just, you know, I've run across this as a sign of weakness. It's actually quite a bit of strength because um, phrase we use a lot, you know, I know what I don't know, but I'm not afraid to ask. We're speaking with Patrick Benson. He is a co-founder and director of War Horses for Veterans. Uh, let's talk about that program and about how you came to be involved with it. Now, looking at your bio and your background, Patrick, I'm going to guess that when you showed up at uh, to co-found War Horses for Vets, that wasn't the first time that you dealt with horses, was it? No, no. I actually got into, uh, when I was stationed in Fort Carson, we used to take the guys up and we would go help out on ranches and stuff. And I used to kind of um, I like being around horses, so I figured it'd be an interesting uh, journey. So after uh, an ordeal in Fallujah, I wrote a letter to a gentleman that's a very successful uh, entrepreneur and businessman and uh, horseman. And his uh, he actually lost his brother in uh, Vietnam. He was a, his brother was a uh, in recon, and so from there he'd say, "Keep your head down. I'll, I'll, we'll have a spot for you when you get back." And I, I got in the horse industry and not knowing a damn thing about it, but it was the greatest thing I could have done for me. It, it gave me the challenges I, I was looking for. It, you know, gave me the thrills and exhilaration, the, the adrenaline rush that, you know, you, you, you yearn for once you leave that type of environment from the combat arms and operations. And so it kind of kept me out of trouble at the same time. Uh, I was fortunate and did well in it in uh, different areas. And about eight years after being in the, um, leaving the military, I never had anything to do with the military when I got out. I 
basically shoved it away and never really talked about it and, and just submerged myself in work and building a business. And then about eight years, eight, nine years later, everything kind of came to the surface a little bit. And I was like, called a buddy of mine. I'm like, you know, uh, I'd like you to come up to Kansas City. I need to chat with you a little bit. I, I got all kinds of stuff popping in my head and I have no idea what the hell's going on. And so we talked and, you know, he was telling me the challenges people were having getting out and a lot of our buddies and, and some of the different, you know, things that a lot of us go through in transition. And uh, luckily enough, I had I had very great mentors and uh, great clients at the time that had very accomplished and very, very, very in-depth networks and, and resources. And I thought then I was like, it'd be really cool if the veteran had the same resources I had right now. And that's where it kind of morphed into that. And a few years later, I had uh, met the Browns, you know, doing what I did for a living was actually saving my, you know, saving my ass. I, I didn't realize working a horse was, you know, healing me in a way. And I, you know, I don't get real, you know, touchy feeling, emotional and all that kind of stuff and program. But the, the biggest thing is there's something powerful about a thousand pound animal that if you learn, you can control and, and work with as a partner with the littlest effort possible. But you have so much power and it's very, very humbling because at the same time, without that animal, if you don't want you on there, they're going to get you off or figure a way to do it. So <laughs> you have to build, you have to allow yourself to be vulnerable and then be trusted and vice versa. And they can sense everything. So you can put up a mask, but they're not, it doesn't matter. They can re, they can see right through it. So from that moving forward, I realized, you know, you know, to share this opportunity within uh, the horse business and horse industry, what it's done for me and some of my buddies, uh, we started, you know, War Horses for Veterans with uh, Andy and Patricia Brown. As the co- they were the co-founders. They were the ones that believed in the vision that I had for the program and have been without, I mean, without each other, that wouldn't be there. But at the same time, their support and love that they have, as you know, as civilians for the United States military is, is it goes over and beyond. I, I cannot tell you how, what they, what they do emotionally and financially is amazing to be honest with you. And War Horses for Veterans, let's talk about the details of that program. I mean, you look at the title of it, some people make them up and be like, wait, you're going to give me a horse? That's not what it's about, obviously. It's a little bit different than that. So if someone does walk up to you and says, hey, what is War Horses for Veterans all about? What do you tell them? I tell them it is a, or it is a premier equine program for combat veterans. It is You will have an opportunity to work with some of the top-level horses, very high-end horses to the most basic, but it's a the building ground you're learning a trade and then at the same time you know it's providing personal and professional opportunities for combat veterans we we've been fortunate from that area to where we've been able to help with sometimes it's just with jobs and direction you know and the program is free to all combat veterans and you know we go through an application process that you can go online but the thing about the program is is the fact that once you come through, it's not over. You can come back as many times as you want as long as you mentor or give back to another combat vet. And so um, and you and you come back still, no cost, as many times as you want. It's over a three-day period. Uh, three days is uh, what I've found on teaching clinics that most people can get away from for, and at the same time, retention of information and knowledge. So, you know, it's, it's worked out. We've been very fortunate uh, with the success of the program. When they're out there for three days, I mean, if someone hears about this, maybe isn't all that familiar with horses, but it sounds like something that could be interesting to them. Uh, what what are they doing during those three days? I mean, is it just hop on a horse, saddle up and ride off and, and just go ride off for the whole day? Or I imagine there's a bit more structure than that. No, there is. You you know, you apply online we and we have a phone call and we discuss like I have uh, today. I have about 11 veterans I got a call 
um, that applied uh, just last week. And so what we ended up doing, we, we chat, make sure it's a good fit for them. We're a good fit, for, you know, as a partnership. And then we set up all the alignment for when they come in. And then Friday nights, really, so they're small groups, no more than four to six. Six is usually there's a mentor or two there. But to keep the group small, uh, most veterans, you know, have really enjoyed that factor because it's more personal interaction. And it's not too big of a group that's overwhelming where you get lost in. And then from then, in those three days, you know, the first day is a small group of us. You meet the core crew uh, team, um, the people that are involved uh, are the Browns, and then a lot of veterans that have been um, associated and their mentors. And within that, you're with your own. Bottom line is most everyone there has, you know, been there, gone through it. I have Viet- I have a couple of Vietnam veterans that are just amazing. Gary Llewellyn, assistant director, he's he was a scout pilot in Vietnam and had been through quite a bit. And we, we've uh, been fortunate to have those amazing, you know, service members be able to be a part and, and mentor us and, you know, help, you know, kind of guide us and decide, you know, with, help us from going down the same, you know, rabbit hole they saw themselves or their friends go down. And so we'll go back to the three days. You know, it's a, it's when it comes to the horses, you don't have to know a darn thing. I actually, it works out great because then you don't have any bad habits. But from that, I'm, you're going to learn horsemanship one-on-one from ground or from grooming to groundwork to round pin work to saddle work and being in the saddle, working the horses. I'm teaching every single one of them what I actually do as a trade. And I teach them exactly what I do to get horses ready to ride. And so there's no... You know, this is what provided an opportunity for my family. So I wanted them to learn trade and ride and work really high in horses. At the same time, you're with your peers. And then a lot of the veterans that have been through the program get to go in and work with the new vets, and they show them techniques. And there's a lot of confidence. You build a lot of camaraderie. You have a sense it's a big family. It's a a lot of we're laughing, we're joking. If stuff needs to get vented, it gets vented. But at the same time, it's it's a very supportive environment where the uh, mindset is thinking forward and, you know, and, and moving, moving on. So from that, you know, I say horses are the bridge and veterans are own best therapy. You know, you can be, like I said, you don't have to know a thing about horses. And I promise you by the, by the, uh, by lunchtime on the first day of working horses, you, you're on them, you're doing stuff on horses that people have. I mean, it takes them forever to learn how to do. It's a, it's a pretty fantastic opportunity to be honest with you. We're speaking with Patrick Benson, co-founder and director of War Horses for Vets. Uh, Patrick, as you just told us, you don't need to know anything about horses to go out there. You do need to be a combat veteran. Other than those two uh, qualifications, or at least one's a qualification, the other one's kind of a lack of a qualification, who else do you think will benefit most from this program? Like, who's the perfect applicant for War Horses for Veterans? A wide, you know, there's a wide range of them. Actually, we're looking for veterans that are doing great. I mean, they're just killing it. I mean, they're 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 leaders in their personal life and professional life, and just doing fantastic. We want we want them because those are the ones that are going to be, you know, have to help with the impact within it with the veterans that are really struggling how to put their foot forward. Um, you know, you're. You don't know where to go, your PTS, your TBI, um, you know, you're overwhelmed, your anxiety levels are incredibly high, you, you, you develop a sense of fear, which is not uncommon. You know, there's a wide variety of them. Um, but I will say, I mean, if you are a recovering drug addict, are you just a drug addict or an, you know, uh, you know, a high alcoholic or whatever, it's not an isolated location. You stay in a, you know, in a very nice hotel at the Hilton. There's no one, baby, you know, going to be keeping an eye on you 24-7 to tell you what you can and can't do. So at the same time, we are looking, you know, if we've had vets that have unfortunately been 
you know, at a very low point of, you know, possibly contemplating suicide to become leaders in our organization that became head mentors. And we've seen that happen. So it's a very wide spectrum of them. I think at the end of the day, I mean, we, we see, you know, high ranking officers to lower enlisted, lower officers. It doesn't matter what your rank was or is. It's, you know, a matter of where you're at in your life and a journey. And if you want to give back and help others out there, we, you can, you know, use this as a platform and it's an awesome, awesome opportunity. And, and it's our program, meaning it's our program as veterans. So we get to help build it. We build it. I mean, may establish and founder, co-found all that stuff, but at the same time, you know, it's many minds, you know, will make that a much better product. You know, we'll be able to do more with many more vets coming in with great ideas and we can implement those things and then they get credit for it. You know, you, you help build something that's helping many. There are a lot of us out there. I mean, I have a small amount of experience with horses. I've ridden a few times. My wife's family, uh, they're kind of involved with the uh, the, the show horse community and jumping and all that stuff. But yeah, for those of us yeah. who aren't really familiar with horses, what do you think the biggest surprise is when you get out there and you start working with those magnificent animals? Peace. Um, a lot of them say peace, clarity. They forget about everything. That uh, Forget about everything. You're so focused on this animal and this animal is, and you teach a way to work with them, that, that animal is focused on them a hundred percent. So you have, um, you know, a personal bond that you end up having with a, you know, it is a very, you know, kind of a magical uh, thing. It's kind of hard to explain from that you know point of view, but what happens is you see veterans smile, you see the shell be chiseled off and kind of fall off of them and, and they regain, you know, just that bit of peace, and then when, when that happens, it's just a lot of, you know, you get clarity, you're able to release information and then receive information, you know, and like you had mentioned about, you know, the family with the jumping and show jumping, that's where my background was, is I was with Western and English and show jumpers and adventures and dressage horses and then reining and cutting. And the beauty of that is I get that you as a veteran could come to the program. If you're doing really well, guess what? I get to step you up to the Porsche, the Ferrari, the whatever level of, of horse that you're capable of riding at time. And you'll get a sensation that unless you have the resources or the funds or the opportunity, it's, it's a very rare opportunity to be able to ride at such a fine tuned animal, but realizing how little effort, how little energy you need to you know project to get such a large creature to move so you know, peacefully. You know, Patrick, and we're speaking with Patrick Benson, co-founder and director of War Horses for Veterans, there have been countless movies made about the relationships between people and horses. There's obviously a connection there. There's something to it. What do you think it is about horses that allows them to connect so easily with us? You know, they're a prey, you know, they're, we're a prey and they're, a, you know, they, they run. They, their job is to flight. They need to move and go. And we, and then at the same time, we're hunters and we're gatherers and we're, the, and, we're and that's the fact you're, you be able to link up with this animal and they trust you. And then like, I'm talking like get to do stuff where you have an animal that their eyes, you know, get the size of a freaking tire and you say, jump this jump or jump over or jump down this Creek or whatever. And they have so much trust within each other as an individual. So it's no different than I had a horse named Scooter. I had a bond with him, no different than my brothers in arms when I was in Iraq. I mean, this horse would do anything for me and and I would do anything for him. And that was the first interaction I had outside of that community. And it was, I mean, until this day, I've, I've, I've never experienced anything like that except for being in battle, you know, and, and I, 
I think that connection, you've seen it in war movies and you've, you've read it in time with soldiers and their horses in battle, the bravery and the trust that they had with each other was it's just pretty remarkable. And you, it's amazing to see an animal that you could barely touch and barely put it in. And you, you try so hard to ride to all of a sudden you're riding this horse and you're going into fire or you're going into the scary, you know, jumps or scary pits or whatever obstacle it is. And to be able to um, take that animal and you as an individual and work them together and create that bond. Um, it's very rare. It's like, I don't, I haven't yet experienced any other areas of, you know, yet in my life that are anything like that. Well, Patrick, uh, where do people go to find out more about the organization? And then what is the process for putting in an application specifically? Is it is it outlined right there on the website for them? Yes, you can go to warhorsesforveterans.org, click on apply, uh, fill out the application, and you can reach out to us at info at warhorsesforveterans.com or my email at patrick at warhorsesforveterans.com or, yeah, .org. And we'll end up, uh, we'll get back to you right away. And if you have any questions, you know, don't hesitate to ask more about it because, you know, War Horses is, you know, we're looking for, like I said, personal professional opportunities for combat vets. We want to see, you know, leaders, you know, you leave as leaders in your uh, personal or professional life. And you get to help, you know, be able to assist and help others uh, in a unique way that is, you know, very effective, very effective. we got an amazing team, a uh, group of uh, combat vets and, you know, private civilians, you know, Kelly Slagle, uh, life coach and a counselor, and, you know, John Parker, Gary Llewellyn, um, you know, Gary Ganowski and, you know, Jason Claypeck, they're all vets, and two of them are first responders, and we just couldn't be more blessed. I mean, we have an amazing family. It certainly sounds like it, and I imagine if there's someone out there, you know, who has a bunch of horses, works with horses in some other part of the country who's interested and hears about this and says, maybe that's something I'd be interested in doing, I, they're more than welcome to reach out to you guys, right, and find out how you're doing everything? Yeah, absolutely. I uh, I talked to many, and I've actually helped start a couple other ones around the country with what they were wanting to do, so kind of, you know, it's, you know, there's only so much one organization can do. So it's important to us as, you know, it's not horses, but we work in multiple different levels to support each other. At the end of the day, we're trying to help our own. So I think it's very, very important that we all reach out to each other and support each other as much as possible. And I'm now joined in studio by the executive director of AMVETS and Marine Corps veteran Joe Chanelli. We're going to do a full interview with Joe to talk about a number of topics that AMVETS is currently focusing on. But that's coming up in just a little bit. First, Joe, I want to ask you, after we talked uh, to Patrick from War Horses for Veterans, you're a pet owner, right? You've got uh, a dog, which I like, and cats, which I very much do not uh, care for as a pet anyway. Uh, what do you think, what role do you think pets can play in kind of calming people down, helping them uh, you know, get through? Not just pets, but all animals, like horses and other things like that. Do you think there is a place for that as far as dealing with PTSD and all that kind of stuff? So I, I do. I love animals. I think they're delicious. <laughs> <laughs> but, but with pets, I, I do really do believe that they have a, a real value to those uh, who need that type of uh, emotional support. Uh, clearly, we've all grown up seeing... Uh, um, pets and you know, service dogs that can help people with physical disabilities. I think those with uh, mental health issues and uh, you know uh, overwhelming anxiety and depression, um, things like that. Uh, we know a lot about um, what they can do with being able to help um, identify serious health issues like strokes oh, yeah. um, and um, the, things like that. Those before they uh, they come on. And so it's very valuable. Um, we as an organization uh, support a few different organizations that provide service animals. 
uh, to veterans. We think they're they're really valuable. Um, we do see some problems. We see some things getting abused. Uh, yeah, the service just, animal thing has gone gone a little off the rails. Like did you one, see the one in the news the other day about the squirrel? Yeah, yeah, I did. <laughs> that, that that was the one where they wouldn't let her on the plane yes. with the squirrel, and she said, "This is my service animal." It's a wild animal. Although when I was stationed in Italy, we went to a, a pet store once. That it was a pet store that was like inside of a, a mall type area, and there was a squirrel available for purchase. Like they were selling squirrels as pets. I couldn't believe it. It was bizarre. But as a service animal, I really don't think so. Hamsters, no. Gerbils, guinea pigs, no. No rodent, I don't think, is going to be a service animal. Yeah. But, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe there's an expert who'll tell me I'm wrong. I don't know. Um, I, I've seen the squirrels here in D.C., and they can get pretty comfortable around humans, but they still are wild animals. Yeah. Um, I, I do think well, we're in a danger area here where there's people who are abusing the ADA um, and bringing dogs and cats and animals like that into stores and at airports that really are not properly trained. And if, if you're going to do that, you're re- really doing a disservice to veterans who have taken the time to have a, a truly trained service animal. A uh, service animal should not be running away from you to grab the hamburger somebody dropped under their chair, you know, type of thing. The, the animals are supposed to be pretty well disciplined. Yeah. And it's, uh, if, if you're not doing that, you really need to uh, – look at yourself and understand that the harm you may be doing to others who do need those service animals. I, you know, and there are uh, also people who use it as some sort of a, uh, a fraud device. I remember there was a guy up on Long Island who marched in a parade in the town that I lived in up there, Huntington. I think it was a Veterans Day parade uh, in, in the Huntington area and uh, w- was blind and had a, a guide dog with him. And then shortly after the parade, one of the members of the VFW post tells me, yeah, so then I'm walking to get back to my car. I'm a few blocks away. I've had to park pretty far away. Parking is horrible in Huntington. I see the guy and the dog. He's sitting down on a bench looking at his phone, flicking through his phone. This guy was you know, representing an organization up there that had come under fire a few times with a bunch of phonies. But, you know, it's it's sad that there are those who will take advantage of something like that and use it for uh, negative purposes or try to skirt the system to get their pet to come with them. Like, you know, just because, they well, if I say it's a service animal, who are they to question me? And it's not really something that's verified by too many places. It, it's sad that that can cast a pall on a lot of good things that service animals are doing. And, of course, in this case... War Horses for Vets, well, you're going out there to learn how to take care of horses, learn how to ride, learn how to do all the things with them, and it is a fantastic program. And horses, they're a different breed. They're not dogs even. They are. Their intelligence level is sky high. They have this sort of connection to people, as we talked about with Patrick, that is uh, it's just unique and it's special. And if you're interested in finding out more, again, check out War Horses for Veterans. We'll be back with more from Joe Chanelli, Executive Director of AMVETS, going to move on from service animals and horses and talk about what AMVETS is doing right now on the morning briefing when it comes back right after this. Welcome back to the morning briefing brought to you by Entercom Radio's ConnectingVets.com. Connecting Vets every day is a slogan and it's what we're doing and you know where we're doing it on the website, ConnectingVets.com, as well as on social media. We are at ConnectingVets on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and YouTube. Our next guest is a Marine Corps veteran and currently serves in a different capacity. 
still working with veterans, not just Marines, but all of them over at American Veterans, a.k.a. or maybe BKA, better known as AMVETS. He is Joe Chanelli, my old Defense Information School classmate, and he joins us now on the Morning Briefing. Joe, good morning. How you doing today? Never better, Eric. Good morning. How are you? I, I wish I was living Joe Chanelli's life because every week is never better. It's always better than the last one. Upward, always. Do you think there's ever going to be a day you come in and be like, just not quite as good as last week? Is there, sure, there sure going to be a reset or a dip <laughs> in the life of Joe? I don't know. I do know that the life of Joe will continue to focus on veterans' issues uh, for uh, the foreseeable future, I imagine. And we've got a bunch of stuff to talk about today. First off, Hurricane Michael made landfall in Florida yesterday. We were seeing some uh, devastating views from down there. Didn't seem to get the same... Uh, news coverage that Hurricane Florence did, but when it, it actually made landfall, I think it was stronger than Hurricane Florence was when it made lands, landfall, although not quite as big. What can you tell us about what AMVETS and the posts down there are dealing uh, with you, in the wake of this? You're right about how, how massive this was, how powerful. It was the most powerful uh, hurricane to hit the United States since Andrew hmm. back in, I believe, the 80s. Um, I, I, and you're right, we don't have, uh, we do not have nearly the media um ramp up to this because when they come out of the Gulf, like um, like this one has and come over the warm water, it's unpredictable and produce it a lot quicker. It's not coming all the way across the Atlantic and hitting Cuba and all that first. And so the reason I spend time talking about that is it means there's less resources. There's less people standing by to help. And there are a lot of veterans down in that area, obviously. And it's not just Florida. It's, it's also well up into Georgia. It was still a category three hurricane when it made it into Georgia, which Georgia has not seen winds that strong, that sustained since the 1940s. They just don't build for that. It's, it's not like Florida where they uh, are, are better prepared for this type of thing. Um, so we have a lot of our members are impacted. We have a lot of posts that are impacted. Um, as we do with a lot of these natural disasters, that we're, we're mobilizing right now. Um, we don't have any posts that are acting as shelters right now, um, which we have had in past national um Disasters, but so we are. We have um, our posts. Are, are there's a lot of Florida that's doing just fine, and uh, they have our, our department in Florida has a disaster relief program, uh, so they're going to be leading this effort for us. Um, they're bringing a lot of supplies up in there, a lot of manpower, um, you know, a lot of guys with chainsaws and shovels, and uh, the storm surge has done a lot of damage, um, and really we're just we're just starting to see this morning how bad it is. Um, we also have a whole lot of National Guard um, who have been deployed to this. And when I say we, I mean as a country. So these are people we need to make sure we're helping take care of as well and helping fill in behind them as they leave their communities and a lot of times leave their families while their families are in the face of this disaster. Um, and one of the Air Force bases down there, uh, Tyndale, I don't know if you've seen the imagery yet, but uh, hit very bad. Um, a lot of big aircraft, really expensive stuff, damaged, but uh, hangars, um, it, so there's a, a national security you know, aspect to this as well. And with the short notice that they really had, um, a lot of things didn't get moved out. In fact, in Georgia, where we also have several bases, they were unable to do any evacuation. Uh, so we'll, we'll see how this storm continues uh, it, before it uh, leaves the United States. And, yeah. But we're, we're, on, uh, we're on guard right now and positioning. And in Louisiana right now, they're filling trucks. In uh, down uh, further over in Tampa and Orlando, they're filling trucks, so we'll be in there shortly. Yeah, I mean it's it's 
it's odd. Again, as you said, there was the long buildup for Florence because when they come out of the Atlantic, it does take longer for them to uh, gather steam or gather rain and wind in this case uh, and move over there, whereas the ones in the Gulf. And, and it's interesting that you mentioned Georgia. You know, this hit the panhandle of Florida, essentially, is where it made landfall. Uh, and the, the Georgia area that it hit is not on the coast. So they're not people that are particularly used to dealing with hurricanes. It's kind of like what we saw with uh, Katrina, where that storm yeah, devastated New Orleans. But then you look over in Mississippi, you go up the river there and check out everything. I mean, it, it can be devastating. If people want to help out, if there's something that they want to do, you know, those who can't get down there to to be boots on the ground helping people out, uh, what would you recommend they do? Who should they contact? I mean, is there an AMVETS thing set up or is there a specific organization you think is the best one for them to contact? So, of, of course, I think AMVETS is a, a very good one. And so uh, AMVETS.org, we have information right on the front page of how people can help. Um, of course, if you are in the area or if you're near an AMVETS post, very likely they're going to be doing a, a drives to collect supplies that, is ne- that are needed down in, in the hardest hit areas. Um, we are establishing that today in a lot of the posts Really, we don't know yet what's needed. Uh, there's some things that are always needed, but we don't know in particular what's going to be. Uh, you know, we'll be reaching out. We're already co- coordinating with federal government, and they will give us some lists of things. Hey, these are the things we're short on right now, and we then, and often it's it's water, you know, uh, things like that, um, non-perishables, um, but also clothing. Um, the, but your local post is in all all likelihood going to be collecting. Uh, things and they may even be putting together working parties depending on where in the country you are. How can people find out about their local posts? You know, if if they're not an AMVETS member and they're like, well, that would be great. I'd love to be able to donate goods or money or whatever the case may be. What's the best way for them sure. to figure out where the local one is and find out if they are in fact going to be collecting? Sure. So again, um, if you come to AMVETS.org, we've got to find, a, find the post and it's searchable by zip code. Uh, you'll find the post that's closest to you. Um, we're also going to be talking a lot in the media and the local areas down there uh, on how people can help as well. We're speaking with Joe Chanelli, the executive director of AMVETS. Hurricane Michael has been the topic so far. Let's move on to Hurricane VA because, man, things are always blowing around over there. And Secretary Wilkie apparently is not being all that forthcoming with some documents relating to the Mar-a-Lago crowd. Some people may remember that story when it was broken uh, a little while ago. I think, who was it that did that? Was it The Intercept or? It was ProPublica. Uh, That's right, ProPublica. And which, they had the story on basically three members, including uh, Ike Perlmutter and others who uh, were apparently having a lot of influence on the VA, but despite not being veterans themselves. And in the case of two of the three, not being doctors, not having any sort of experience in the medical industry. Uh, so what's the issue right now and what is it that Wilkie seems to be holding back? Sure. So I've personally talking, spoken with Secretary Wilkie and with Acting Undersecretary Stone, who runs the healthcare side of the VA, and they both have acknowledged and they both brought up on their own that they have spoken with the, the Mar Largo Three, as uh, they've they've been coined, um, and they say that there is no real influence there. That they spoke to them out of courtesy because they do realize that they are friends with the President of the United States and you know, do have his ear, but that. They, as an institution, the VA has not been unduly influenced by these three. And uh, I think it's important to note that they're not veterans. They are businessmen, uh, once a lawyer, once the, once the chairman of Marvel Entertainment, yeah. uh, which – and uh, another uh, has, has run medical centers in the past. 
Um, but so we are really troubled that when we talk about transparency in government, how important that is. What is it that there are in these documents that Congress is asking for that has caused the administration to say, no, we're not giving them to you? It's fairly unheard of. Um, the Democrats on the House committee and the Senate committee have said there's absolutely no legal reason to be able to say you're not going to turn these over. Uh, I'll be up at the VA later this morning, and I'll be asking directly why these documents can't be turned over. Don't know what type of answer I'm going to get, but I'm going to certainly ask the question. Um, so, you know, part of the argument here gets a little confusing. The argument is, well, they should not be able to have influence on the VA without Congress knowing about it. Well, 99.9% of those who work at the VA are not confirmed by Congress, so they never have to go before Congress to be approved. But what's kind of lost in this is that if you work at the VA, you do have to adhere to specific ethics. You do have to go through a background check. You do have to uh, disclose any potential conflicts of interest. These three people have not had to do those things. There's no accountability. Um, there is strong potential for conflict of interest. If they really have a lot of influence over what's happening within the VA. Again, the VA secretary has told me they don't have that. But Congress is charged with having the oversight here. And if they're saying, hey, we are suspicious of this, that there may be people who are not accountable to the federal government, but they have real influence over the second largest agency in the federal government, we need to know about it. You need to turn over these documents that were quoted from in the ProRepublic uh, report. And for the administration to say no, it, it leaves us it leaves us suspicious. Yeah, and you know when you're not uh, forthcoming about information, it makes people wonder why. So exactly, you know, and of course, uh, this uh, the administration has not always been the most transparent. Neither was the previous one or the one before that. Uh, but when it comes to this specific thing, where from what I understand, there may not have been anything illegal about having these people uh, give their input. I mean, they weren't officially hired, so you know, the president's allowed to ask whoever he wants for uh, for their input and all that stuff. So why wouldn't you tell anybody unless there was something? You know, you start drawing these conclusions in your head, and that's where you know it's like I, I got a five year old man and I got to deal with him. Almost six now, getting close, five and three quarters. I had to tell him the other day, like, you you just were not telling me the truth. You said you didn't remember something, and I know you did remember it. You had it. It makes it worse. When he finally told me, it was no big deal, but the fact that he wasn't honest about it at the beginning, that made the whole thing worse, you know? It's it, it's the same kind of situation, you know? Not that Robert Wilkie is an impetuous five-year-old, but I, give us what we're asking for, particularly, I, you know, and, and when it comes to politics and that whole game, I don't care for that or care about that all that much. Well, when the VSOs are asking for it, which are uh, predominantly apolitical organizations, AMVETS, you know, you guys don't support one side or the other. Why not? Why wouldn't you provide that information to the VSOs and let them take a look at it? Unless maybe they're worried that somehow it could be used in the election cycle and then after November, uh, what is it, 6th or whatever this year, it's going to uh, uh, it's going to be released then. I mean, do you think that's a possibility? Well, first, I want to clarify, it's not the VSOs that are asking for us. This is Congress. Well, Congress, but the VSOs sure. want to see it, too. Sure. I mean, yeah, so yeah. Congress is officially asking, but you guys are asking uh, unofficially. Right. You're like, hey, we'd like right. to Right. Well, I'll just say here. I wasn't concerned about the Mar Largo 3. I, I, we know there are people who the president listens to. And we've seen since the beginning of this administration 
some influence from them. Yeah, it, it's it's been very apparent, and we haven't been really concerned about. It. Now we're we're only concerned when Congress, who is charged with conducting oversight, is told, "No, we're not yeah. giving you these documents," and then that puts up a warning flag. Um, and, and I'm sorry, what was the original part of that question? Uh, the original part of the question was, do you think that there's any possibility that the VA may be withholding uh, oh, this yeah. stuff until Election Day so that it doesn't have any sort of an effect? I mean, anything's possible. It, to me, I would say, hey, how about you guys hold on a few? You can slow walk things. Yeah. And the election's not far away. If oh, they were going to do that, now. if they were going to do that, it, it, maybe they will. Uh, maybe th- that will be. I, I don't I don't foresee it happening, though. I think they've said no. I think the answer is going to be no. And uh, I'm going to guess that it's the Mar-Largo 3 who doesn't want it released. Yeah, could be. I mean, that uh, that head of Marvel Entertainment is a very private guy. There's only like a handful of photos of him that have exactly. ever been taken. Yeah. He just kind of he seems to take pride in not doing interviews <laughs> and not being photographed and stuff like that. Just one of those odd things that you sometimes find in people. Uh, it, it, it's an interesting situation where I think there are a lot of people who are going to be in the same shoes as you, Joe, who weren't necessarily concerned about it, but then when Congress is saying, hey, we'd like to see this, and the VA just goes, "Mm, no. Well, Congress's job (laughs) is to provide oversight for the VA, part of their job. If the VA is just going to say no to them, then who, I mean, the president, I guess, would have to be the one to tell them to release it, but that's not the way it's supposed to work, you know? It's it's odd. It's odd, that's all. That's really it. not just odd because they've said no, but they really offered no explanation. Yeah, and they didn't say, "Well, you know, we've got we have to exercise executive privilege here, you know, for whatever purpose." And they could be really general on that, and they didn't even get, go there. They yeah. just said, "No, we're not giving it." And so it does. It puts up red flags, and uh, we'll be interested to continue to watch it and see if it does come out. And if it does, you know, will it? Will there even be anything there? You know, who who knows? Um, you know, I met Ike Permutter. Uh, oh, did you take a picture of him? I did not know. <laughs> you didn't know who I, he was? I didn't know. I took pictures. It was actually on the uh, one of the stock market floors. I was up there with Shulkin, and he rang the opening bell. I'm sorry, the closing bell that day. And he was, and Ike was there. Yeah. <laughs> and I did not know that photos of him were so rare. I would have uh, <laughs> hey, filled my phone, no doubt. Yeah. Hey, I'm a Marine Corps <laughs> war veteran. Will you take a picture? I, you'd be hard-pressed to say no to that. He seems to be more averse to the press, specifically getting anything on him, um, which has worked out for him uh, pretty well so far. In keeping at the VA, let's talk about this. This is uh, has been the big story for us over the last couple of days. We're featuring it on the uh, syndicated CBS show that I do. The GI Bill, living stipend mm-hmm. payments, as you said, the, the VA has not really been forthcoming on the Mar-a-Lago crowd. That's its own thing. That's that's over there. And that, uh, do I care about it? Yeah, but it's not the biggest deal in the world to me. Over somewhere between 100,000 and 300,000 veterans in school on the GI Bill not getting their living stipend that they were promised when they were promised it, that's a bigger deal to me. And up until yesterday, the VA hadn't said a darn thing about it, man. How do you feel about this this issue where they were told a year ago they had to do this, they hired extra people to do it, and still couldn't get it done on time? There, there should be national outrage over this. There absolutely should. Uh, very serious. It's going to have some serious impact on veterans who uh, were, were promised a benefit, and they will get the benefit eventually. But to be able to delay is going to have serious consequences in their lives. For some of them, and uh, as as you said in the the early part of the show on the Facebook Live this morning, uh, 
the debtors out there, the electric company, the utilities, the landlords, they don't know about this. Yeah, they, good they, luck. They don't care about this, and it's not their job to care about this. You know, we're we're a small portion of the uh, overall population. You look at the student veteran; it's even a very very small portion, and it's a fraction of a percent. It's like point three percent of the right. population. But these are real people who are going to be harmed through this, and are going to have some uncomfortable times, and you know uh, when they really should not, and at no fault of theirs. And the VA has really failed on this. And as you yeah. said, Congress did not fail on this. Congress. Funded this, they gave them the proper mandates. They discussed the timeframes with them, and VA has just completely failed. And I'll be honest, they don't seem to care too much. They don't seem to care too much, and they don't seem to be learning from their mistakes. We compared it to a subject that we have. You got your VA ID card yet, Joe? <laughs> no, no. But almost just a year a, out, right? I just applied for a new one yesterday. Oh, so we'll see. We'll see. 2019. <laughs> you hoping? You hoping by uh, Veterans Day 2019 to get it? Um, there have been so many issues, and again, it seems to predominantly be on the side, the admin side of the house, and the IT side, and the bureaucratic side of the house. That's where the issues are, and they just don't seem to be learning their lessons. It's the same problems over and over. We've talked to you before about the uh, the issue of the unions over there and the fact that a shop steward is being paid by the VA to do nothing but be a union shop steward. Official time. Yeah, <laughs> getting paid by the VA to work for the union, not being paid by the union. When I was in a union, shop steward had like a half a day every other week or something like that to do union stuff. This is this person's full-time job. Do you think that fixing these processes would probably lead to some people losing their jobs because you would streamline the process. You would have to get rid of some guy whose job it is to carry the manila folder from office 23 to office 25. That guy would be gone. Do you think that there might be, that might play some part in it? The fact that, you know, they don't want people to lose their jobs and improving the process would lead to that. It's a theory that I have. It may, it may be out there, but you <laughs> it, know, it's, it's one of those things that keeps popping up to me is an explanation for why we keep hearing the same damn thing coming out of the VA when it sure. comes to this stuff. So I, I do believe that's a theory that holds water on several issues for the VA. I'm not so sure about this one just because these a lot of these employees are temporary employees on this particular issue Yeah, uh, because they're really trying to build a system. That's, and that's great. Let's bring in a bunch of temps <laughs> to make sure that everybody gets their money. Oh, and We're oh, seeing a lot more Turns of that. out they didn't get their money. Oh, who, who yeah. would have predicted? Me. We're going to see a lot of a lot of temps being brought in to work in the benefit side, in the uh -huh. adjudicating claims side, which is it, it's concerning. Uh, we do know there are times of the year where claims surge. We know there's uh, some just periods when um, new laws are passed. You know, if this Blue Water Navy thing goes through, which we really hope it does, it's going to create a tremendous new burden very quickly and on uh, on the, the benefits side. And so the answer to that is to bring in a bunch of temporary claims adjudicators to, to process it Um of course, it takes a long time for those people to get trained in those types of things. It's, a, it's the same thing here. And, you know, the, the guy you've got uh, running VBA now is a career consultant. So the, he that's the type of uh, work he has done his whole life is yeah. coming in for short fixes. When you have these continuous problems, you're going to start seeing more people learning, leaning towards privatizing, particularly the admin side of the house over at the VA, because... Any other company that operated the way that the VA does would be out of business. They'd be done. They'd be gone. If they didn't have constant federal money being pumped into them, they would be done. 
So why are we allowing this to continue to happen? That's the question. And the more issues there are like this, you know, the VA is very much against privatization uh, for a number of reasons. Well, if you're against privatization and making some changes over there, some, some wholesale changes in that case, you better start proving that you can do it on your own. You know, otherwise we're yeah. going to bring in the big guns. We're going to hire someone who's got a proven track record of being able to do this. If I didn't get paid for a month from this job, <laughs> guess who wouldn't be sitting in this chair in front of this microphone after the first paycheck came up missing? I have a lot of respect for government employees, but you're right. The accountability is not there. The accountability is <laughs> not there. So my, my point on that is that I know a lot of government employees who work so very hard. And, they're and, great they, people. and I don't yeah. want to generalize. Um, but there are definitely some bad actors out there and lack of accountability. And even with all the new laws that have been passed over the last few years now, it's still there and it likely always be there. I remember when I was working up in New York and trying to uh, get in touch with the Northport VA, have them come on a radio show I did up there. Or then when I worked at a news station trying to get info, apparently their public affairs person's job at the time was to look at and not respond to emails from media organizations. <laughs> so I get nothing back. And, and like I, I actually had to show up at their office once to get a response. I got irritated that I wasn't getting a response. So I went, you know what? I'm eligible to go into the Northport VA. I've been there before. So I walked in and was like, hey, nice to meet you. I'm a patient here, but I'm also and went through that. I mean, it's <laughs> again, it's not everybody, but there are people who bad actors, dead weight, uh, obsolete jobs. There's a lot of stuff going on. And I think all of it contributes to issues. And and I think some of it, like with this, with these GI Bill changes causing a problem, let's talk briefly about the Blue Water Navy issue. They don't want to do that. So Here's something that they they didn't not want to do with the GI Bill. Congress put it through, and they just tried and failed to meet the deadlines that they needed to meet. What's going to happen with a program like the Blue Water Navy if it's something that they are outspokenly against even wanting to do? What kind of effort's going to be put into that? So this is something where we're really going to need, as a nation, we're going to need the veterans organizations to be very strong on this and hold their feet to the fire. Uh, when the presumptives were went through and they were passed for Agent Orange presumptives being, a, if you were on the ground in Vietnam, then you were eligible for these benefits if you have this element. And that, that's what will happen with the Blue Water Navy um, bill if it is finally passed in the Senate um, and if the president signs it, which could be a, an issue as well. And it's going, to re it's going to require some real effort. The VA will not be able to just handle this in its current structure. It'll have to add and it'll have to restructure and prioritize just like it did with Agent Orange. And that will cause some other things to slow down and all that. And the VSOs and Congress are going to have to watch them every day on that and make sure that they're really doing it and not allow for the feet dragging, uh, which, you know, could very well be what happens. Yeah. And uh, we hope that that is not what happens. But I got a bad feeling about it. My bad feelings about the VA somehow tend to come true all the time, it seems. <laughs> uh, there's more that we wanted to talk about here, but we're going to have to save that for next week because we sure. are running out of time. Again, Joe Chanelli, Executive Director of AMVETS. If people are interested in contacting their local post about helping out with Hurricane Michael uh, and, and the recovery from that is today, we're just kind of learning about what's going to be needed, and that'll go on for, uh, uh, for the next couple of weeks, probably at least. How do they go about getting in touch with their local AMVETS post to help out with that? Uh, so you can find out how, how to help. You can find out where your local post is uh, right on AMVETS.org. Uh, we're on every social media platform, of course, at AMVETS HQ. Uh, we'll be posting and tweeting a lot of updates from from these disaster zones, uh, from Florida, from Georgia. The Carolinas are about to get a lot more rain, and they're still waterlogged. 
So there's a lot of veterans out there who need your help. And, of course, AMVETS.org is the site to check out the most inclusive veteran service organization. Veterans with honorable discharges from all generations are eligible for membership in AMVETS. Whether you served during Afghanistan, Iraq, World War II, Korea, or none of the above, you are eligible for membership in that organization. Thanks to Joe Chanelli for joining us today. Also, a big thank you to Patrick Benson, co-founder and director of War Horses for Vets, not just for coming on the show, but for the great work he's doing out there in Kansas. Go check out War Horses for Vets and check us out tomorrow. We'll be back with a Friday show. Going to talk to Mr. Edgar Gonzalez of Gold Star Vodka. I've had the opportunity to try it, and it's good. As soon as I tried it, I was like, oh, hey, dude, want to come on my show and talk about your alcohol? Because he's done a good job and done it while still serving in the U.S. Army. Getting ready to deploy right now. Going to have his brother taking the reins while he's gone. Anyway, you'll hear that whole story tomorrow. Until then, have a great day. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app.